This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the Digital India Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note, I'm registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Discussion is not tied to the offer of sale investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree affiliates. We're going to have a really interesting show for you today. We're going to be talking about Snowflake's recent blockbuster IPO, the largest, biggest IPO for a software company on record, what that says for the market, for technology, investor sentiment. Uh, but to start, Professor, we've had a, a difficult start here to September. Uh, what's your current read? What are you thinking? Yeah, well, uh, okay, so there's there's two things weighing on the market, and we mentioned them last week. Um, you know, the lack of a stimulus bill. And, uh, you know, you know, over the past week, the death of uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg has just you know, added to car- uh, partisan uh, fracturing and uh, not willing to get together. Uh, so the prospects of a stimulus bill before the election have dimmed. And and, and that there, there's no question that that is this serious. The PPP running out, um, the unemployment uh, insurance running out, uh, showing the bonus on insurance, and in some cases actually um, – uh, insurance running out. I think it's going to definitely weigh on the market. And that that I think that's been the major uh, factor. Uh, there is also election concern. <laughs> I mean, a lot of uncertainty um, uh, surrounding that the election, and, and uncertainty always discounts the market. Um, the more I think is, if we say, once we get this election away, uh, I think that we could get a nice rally just because we get it away. As long as there's now, you know, protracted struggle afterwards, we'll talk about that in just a moment. But the stimulus is 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 definitely a, a big a major factor weighing on it. I mean, the market is holding at these levels, and and again, it's a healthy reaction, top to bottom. S&P uh, intraday just about hit 10%. I mean, NASDAQ was in the correction mode of around 15, bounced back a little. I mean, we're, we're at fine places given those uncertainties, um, you know, and, and there might be some future sell-offs. But I, it's hard to see a big rally without either big move on the stimulus package uh, or, um, um, uh, uh, you know, some – uh, uh, you know, other, other other factor that 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 can push the market forward politically. Uh, the, the 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 odds are just about holding in the in the political markets. Um, Biden is a 58-46 margin right now in Predicted.org, which is virtually exactly the Senate margin. Um, again, if uh, if if any if every Senate uh, seat went as the betting odds are. Day, it would be exactly 50-50 with the presidency controlling uh, the Senate. It should be mentioned, however, that there's uh, two very, uh, very close Republican races, uh, races um, that are in the 50s probability for the Republicans. So that's almost a uh, coin flip, while the closest race uh, for the um, um, uh, Demo- you know the Democrats uh, is is uh, is the North Carolina race between Cunningham and Tillis, in which uh, Cunningham still leads almost a two to one lead. So, if there is a um, even a minor Republic- uh, Democratic wave, it would go fifty two forty eight in the Senate. Um, again, now there's there's two important things coming up next week, 
Um, first of all, the employment report next Friday. Uh, market is expecting unemployment to, to tick down to 8.4. I'm not sure. I, I, I think we might actually see a bounce, uh, I mean, excuse me, tick down to 8.2 from 8.4. I think we actually might see a bounce up. I, I think the lack of stimulus and the lack of the PP plan, I, I, people are, I think, are, are, are looking for work, are going to be looking for work rather than being held on uh, as uh, the PPP plan uh, uh, dictates. Uh, so we might we see weakness there, which might spur more efforts to get a stimulus done. But then we're, almost, we're another week closer to uh, the election. Uh, and secondly, of course, next Tuesday, we have the first presidential debate um, between Biden and Trump. That's apt to be important to see how, you know, Biden stands and, and Trump stands uh, on these issues. Um uh, so, uh, you know, it, it is a close enough race that that, that uh, also definitely could count. So by the next Friday's uh, show, we will have the employment report. will just, of course, will come out a few hours earlier. And, of course, uh, some of the feedback from the presidential uh, uh, race coming up. So the, the volatility professor we had this week, do you think it was as much on uh, sort of the fiscal package not disappointing? We also had some, some fears about sort of shutting down Europe. with Correct. Now let's talk a little bit about the European. The, there is a surge in cases. There's not a surge in hospitalizations or serious cases. So a lot of the cases are younger people, asymptomatic cases, that are uh, uh, that, that are getting there. So uh, you know that um, that basically is what's happening. But you know there is you know I mean it's not good to get this in in in, in any case. Um, we know how to treat the virus better. We 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 know how to. Um, um, uh, uh, you know, prepare people for 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 what the treatments they're going to get. So, in in some sense, there is shutdowns. Um, actually, the, probably the most serious case is, is is Israel, which I think we mentioned before, really shut down and killed the virus, and it just popped back stronger than ever. And actually, their deaths are actually up to their initials were very low. Even Iceland, which was held up as a paragon, still has not had any deaths for months, but a surge in cases the last couple of days. Um, this goes into the theory that that really what you've done with a clampdown is just push the basis of the number of cases to the future. And again, we've talked about Sweden Virtually no increase in cases, never a shutdown. And one of the few places in Europe not to have an increase in cases, but they had all their increase of cases in, in, in the beginning. So it's like it has to go through. And, of course, if going through later is, is better because we got treatments going through early caused more deaths uh, uh, than we've had here. As you know, there hasn't been another surge, really a slight increase in cases in 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 the northeast but most of that is just really an increase in the number of testing so you know it seems to go through the uh, go through there was a very interesting article in this week's economist by the way talked about the seropositivity and they actually showed a graph saying that you know the wave has basically gone through the world and the vulnerable groups are get are you know have been affected they're they have reacted and um uh, in many cases, they just think it. It we've achieved almost herd um, uh, uh, immunity uh, to this. Secondly, we, we should keep in mind, and this is something else that's going to probably come on next week or two. Potential early results of uh, phase three and four trials. Um, that actually the earlier we hear the better because that means they will have stopped them because the results are good if we don't hear anything um <laughs> that means they need more cases which might mean the effectiveness is not as great of course that's reading into the tea leaves um we we also don't want to hear any news about halting it because of serious reactions we did have that two weeks ago so that's another factor but uh, i wouldn't be surprised if we got some news of effectiveness within, if not the next week, within uh, the next uh, two weeks on uh, one of uh, the vaccines in the uh, 
in the uh, phase three trials. Very good. You know, we, we have a new feature where all of our listeners can write in to ask Professor Siegel questions every week. You can do Ask Siegel, S-I-E-G-E-L, at wisdomtree.com to get your questions answered. Professor, we had a few questions this week. One on, you know, we've talked a little bit about real estate on the show and, you know, some of the challenges of the new COVID world. Uh, somebody asked about uh, real estate investment trusts, how you're thinking about them now, and, and what, you know, typically you would say within portfolios, how you think about REITs, sort of what, what type of allocations you look at usually. Well, you know, we REITs, uh, you know, we used to be a, a, a sector of finance, and then they broke the, broke them out several years ago from the S&P to produce for the first time in decades at 11th sector. But REITs themselves are very heterogeneous. I mean, you have industrial REITs, you have, you know, apartment REITs, you have residential REITs, um, um, uh, commercial REITs, and they're all very, very different animals. I mean, the industrial REITs are doing fantastically. Many of them are, you know, the their warehouses that uh, house the uh, infrastructure for the cloud, et cetera, and so on. I mean, and our fulfillment centers. I mean, all those are just uh, bank, you know, gangbusters. Uh, then you have the commercial property. So, you know, as a, as a group, it hasn't been battered down that much because there's been the winners along the losers. As I've mentioned, I, I really think that commercial REITs, in, in the property area are going to really be challenged in the future. I, 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 we will come back to work after this COVID ends, but we're not going to be coming back to work like we once did. Um, you know, working from home, staggered work, maybe go in three days a week, two days a week, maybe just for some meetings, um, and you're not going to need uh, you're just not going to need that space that you needed before uh, for those uh, apartment buildings. I think restaurants are going to come back. I think people do like to socialize that way, and once they feel safe, you know, that that, that will come back. Uh, you know, theater and those things will come back. But, uh, you know, the big, the big office towers, do we need those? And the shopping centers, we all know, you know, that I think uh, you know is another thing. Now they've been battered down, so you know, in, in many ways, this is not an unknown story. But just looking into the future, one has to realize that the wheat as a group is a very heterogeneous sector. Yeah, we've looked at some of the trends, and you know, how many more REITs there were now compared to. Uh even just like 15 years ago, you saw an expansion of like 30 REITs to 120 REITs. So there's been so many more coming out there. And so it's, a, it's just definitely an interesting group. Yeah. And- well, I, mean, I mean, it makes sense. I mean, you know, because, you know, commercial real estate, I mean, it's a way to monetize commercial real estate and, and, and trade and get the, the diversification. Uh, you know, they were started around 40 years ago. They were hardly ended. There were also mortgage REITs back then. They did not fare very well when when the interest rates soared. So, you know, we, they, they sort of rotated out. I think there are a few remaining. Uh, at the beginning, they were much more as uh, in mortgage REITs as well as the property REITs. But, you know, you, 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 it, it, it absolutely, you know, you know, makes sense. It's sort of a, almost like an ETF <laughs> in, in, in properties that would otherwise be illiquid. Uh, and to give liquidity, I think they're a great development. Um, uh, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, they, they'll definitely stay around. Um, but clearly, you know, you have to, you have to distinguish some will, will, will certainly thrive better than others. And for one other question, with all the volatility, you know, I know you've done some work on technical analysis in stocks for long run, uh, even though you like to look at it over the long period, you know, some, some value to those kind of signals and, and somebody people asking about, Things that are more rotating based on those kind of trend signals, uh, you know, given the volatility recently, is it is it a reasonable time to be thinking about that kind of hedging well, or the sort of futures type trading strategies? You know, I, I I I actually think unless we get total disruption on the election, I'm now even thinking a Biden sweep and a Democratic sweep, as long as it's maybe not. 60-40 on the Senate or something like that, and with with a you know nice progression, we might see a really. I'm thinking more of a a big November December rally that might surprise people. Until then, all that uncertainty in the economy without the stimulus bill is is really going to be uh, you know challenging. Um, could it change the story of 
of value versus growth, as we mentioned last week. I mean, I think vaccines will be developed, will open the economy, and the search for yield will be good for those dividend-paying stocks in 2021. Well, very good, Professor. Thank you so much for starting the show with us this week. Uh, we'll see you next week. Bye. See, uh, you're listening to Behind the Markets on SiriusXM 132. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. We'll be talking with Matt Garrett, who currently is a managing partner of Salesforce Ventures, the strategic investment arm of Salesforce. Uh, they've got over 400 portfolio companies across 20 countries. Matt, welcome to Behind the Markets. Uh, great to be here. Thank you. I thought maybe we could start off, tell our listeners, we're going to be talking really about your role, Salesforce. Uh, you guys have, have led investment in, in Snowflake, which was really one of the hot IPOs. But maybe before we, we drill into Snowflake and Timely, we could just start about with yourself uh, and how you came to Salesforce Ventures. Sure. So um, I before this was at Battery Ventures, which is a, an institutional venture capital firm. And um, before that, I was an engineer. And I came over, and um, we'd been investing for a number of years, and um, we saw how well the program was working. We decided to really formalize it, build a brand out, and hire a global team. So now we're a team of about 25 people. We have um, investment professionals in London, in Japan, Australia, and the program's um, really grown over the last uh, over the last few years. And as you mentioned, we have. You know, over 400 investments, we've invested over $2.5 billion and had the very good fortune of investing in a number of, of great companies, uh, such as Snowflake and Zoom and DocuSign and many others. So how does how does Salesforce, uh, and I, I should mention, you know, Wisdom Tree is a client of Salesforce. We use your your your, uh, your software to help us with our client relationship management. How does... All right. Thank you. Yeah. So tell her, I mean, how do you guys think about strategic versus, you know, you have, you're just putting balance sheet capital to work as sort of these long-term investment plays. How do you, you know, what is the role of this venture arm besides for, you know, returning high capital returns that, that you're getting on some of these IP, on these, on, yeah. on these exits? Yeah. Strategic is the key thing. And so if you think about Salesforce and how we were um, built, we are a platform company. And so we started investing over 10 years ago. We started first investing in an ecosystem to build out implementation and consulting partners. Um, we then launched our app exchange, which is the equivalent of the Apple app store for enterprise applications. And we started investing. And so really what the mandate of my team and our goal is, is we're going out and we're identifying what are the most innovative companies in the enterprise software space. And we're investing and partnering with these, with those companies. Um, and really what we're doing in, along those lines is um, seeing how we can better work with those companies, integrate workflows, partner with them, and really create this amazing unified experience for our joint customers. And so if our customers, if our joint customers are winning, then both Salesforce wins and the companies that we in, invest in uh, win as well. We certainly look at the um, underlying business metrics and things like that, like an institutional investor would. Um, but we really start with what's the uh, – you know, what's the strategic rationale and how are we going to make this company more successful? And, and so as, as you think about that, that life cycle in, in technology, where we are today in the history, you've been it's been a very hot market. Uh, how, how are you thinking about just, um, you know, the, the valuations you're seeing across the space, how you're thinking about companies in your portfolio versus new capital to put to work? Yeah, so we've been incredibly active through throughout the year. So this has been um, Q1 and Q2 have been uh, our most active quarters. And what we're really seeing is, um, and I'll talk a bit more about this, but, you know, we've been talking about digital transformation as a company for a while. And we've been in, in we in as, you know, you've talked about on your show, um, what we've seen with COVID is that's, that's really being accelerated. And so what we think about this as a long-term 5, 10, 15, 20-year um, uh, movement. And so we're, we, we're going to continue to invest. We've been investing. Um, and it's, you know, we try not to get too distracted on valuations um, in the near term. Certainly, uh, you have to take that into account. But we still think, um, you know, for a number of reasons, these companies are getting larger than ever before. If you look at the number of companies that are valued at over $10 billion dollars, so these are these these companies are becoming much bigger. They're much bigger markets, and just the importance of of digital transformation is only accelerating. So we've we've been active. We'll continue to be active throughout the rest of the year. 
That's interesting. And, and for you know, a lot of the traditional value investors, you know, to see the, the multiples on some of these software as a service type companies, the enterprise software companies, you know, it, it's, it's a different ballpark between the, those companies and the others. So it's interesting to hear how the growth runway is, is really where you guys are focused on. Maybe for people who don't know enough about Salesforce, maybe just give a few seconds on, you know, as, as you talked about thinking things that fit strategically in your in your in your plans maybe just give a, a brief intro to the business of salesforce and and then you know where you where you guys see yourself in the whole ecosystem and, and runways for future growth for, for salesforce yeah so salesforce is this you know customer engagement platform and we have um, applications and products across sales service marketing uh, you know we've been the number one crm solution um, in all of those areas, in many of those areas for a number of years. And really, we think that, you know, Salesforce is uniquely positioned because whether you're a company that needs to think how to better market, how to service, um, you know, we, we, we own uh, a lot of these assets and we're able to provide this 360 view of customers so that, um, you know, as a company, if you're trying, as you're trying to reach out and connect with your customers, um, you can really get that full view um you know, of the customer, and we provide world-class marketing solutions, sales solutions, and service solutions um, for, for, for all of those needs. And so um, in, we continue to, you know, expand. We uh, recently, in the last couple of years, acquired Tableau, which is, which is an analytics solution. So, again, it's really, um, you know, when you think about the front office, it's, it's that application suite to give um, customers a way to engage with their with their customers across their full life cycle. So whether they're coming in and buying something on an e-commerce website and then they need to re- return something and um, you know engage with a customer service representative, we have solutions that that power that whole um, customer journey. And, and as you think about your future runway and then the, trying to add strategic options to enhance that runway, like how would you, you know, if you, I don't know if you want to use an analogy, but like what inning do you say the growth rates are in? What, how much has come towards this kind of uh, model for business? Or like, how, how would you phrase the cycles that we're in here? Yeah, I think one of the best analogies to use is um, if you think about just cloud adoption overall, um, we're, I mean, I think overall cloud adoption is only at 10, 20 percent. Um, it'll hit close to 100 percent over time. So I think that's probably the best way to think about, you know, where we are. It's still we're still very early on. We still have a lot of companies that are using on-premise solutions. We still have a lot of solutions that are um, fragmented and, and your you know customer service solution doesn't talk to your marketing solution. And the, the solutions aren't very well integrated. So maybe you've adopted some software or some technology, but still a lot of that data is living in silos or it's on-premise. And so I think we're still very early on in not only cloud adoption, but really thinking about cloud adoption in a meaningful way where you really truly get this 360 view of customers and and you can really have this, you know, kind of what I was talking about before, where you're providing this uniform experience for customers, whereas I order something on your e-commerce website um, and then I come back to make a return. You know who I am. You know what I bought. I don't need to type in all this information and ask a bunch of questions. So I still think when you think about the overall cloud adoption and digital transformation, we're very early on. Now, I want to go back to sort of the, the role of Salesforce Ventures with inside this bigger organization. You know, cause it's, I think in some ways it's, it's been, do you, do you see it as unique to technology? Do you see this across this kind of venture capital arm within a, a organization? Is it unique to tech? I think Salesforce is uniquely positioned in that. What I was mentioning where we first started investing, we're a platform company. And so the ability for companies to um, build their solutions on our platform, like Encino is a good example. Um, Encino is a uh, you know six seven billion dollar company. They just went public um, a few months ago, and they were part of our financial uh, services suite. So um, we we manage a lot of this kind of like you manage your client relationships. We sell a CRM solution for financial services, um, and but we we didn't have a solution that really managed the back office. So if you were applying for a loan and you wanted to. Um, do that in a very highly automated way and not doing pen and paper and walking to the bank and sending them your information. And if you're a bank, being able to know, like, how are your loans performing? Do I need to check up with this client? Um, and so that's a perfect example of a solution that was built on our platform that was very complementary to what we would do. We, we, we had tons of joint customers. So if you kind of extrapolate that, that's really, I think, the unique thing about Salesforce is that our ability to effectively work and partner with these companies, they can build 
um, all or parts of their um, of their uh, company on our platform, and then um, so we're able to go to our customers to go to you know joint customers together with this um, value proposition, this unified value proposition to show here's the unified experience you get with Salesforce and this other company, whether it's Encino or Snowflake, as we talked about, um, uh, which we'll talk about a bit. And that just really creates a better um, customer experience. And that's, I think that's a unique thing. I think sometimes it's really hard for non-platform companies to make investments in partnership to get that um, same benefit. That is really interesting. We've been talking about platform-based business models on the show uh, a bit as well. I mean, that's a, it's sort of a unique new model for the for this century is is, is companies operating as platforms. So it's interesting to hear that really emphasis on that. Uh, it, it, across the funds that you, you guys are investing in, in in Salesforce Ventures, is there a is do you guys think about different categories, uh, uh, types of themes you guys are investing around? I know you're mentioning being strategic, but is there sort of sub-themes that, that are the most exciting for how you're trying to, to add on to? We do, and, and you can see that in some of the funds. They've tended to be um, geographic in, in focus, so we, uh, you know, we initially were investing in, in North America predominantly. We're investing in things that were tied to our platform, um, so we launched a number of funds that we, we titled our, our platform funds. Um, we then subsequently have launched a couple of um, funds focused on on Europe. We're on our second one there. We've launched a fund in Japan. We've been, been investing there for um, quite some time. Um, and then we've also done some some other initiatives around artificial intelligence. Um, we also launched an impact fund. And we also, you know, we think about culture and we think about values at Salesforce a lot. And so our impact fund is thinking about how can you take Salesforce technologies and invest in companies using them to make the world a better place? Um, and this isn't a fund, but we've also committed to invest $100 million in underrepresented and, and minority founders as well. Again, that's a core value of Salesforce. So we think about it not only from um, furthering our, you know, our, our technological strategic initiatives, but also kind of the things that are core to Salesforce culture. Those are all really interesting threads there that we could push on. Uh, in terms of the 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 impact strategies is when you think about trying to is that do you see a, a broader trend for that in the industry that people are trying to that they're actually making progress on impact ESG investing is a, is a topic that gets a lot of coverage. I do, and so I uh, I have a lot of experience in this. And when I was at Battery, I uh, I was investing a lot in clean tech, and we saw that kind of hit its peak and then and then come down. And I think what you're seeing now. That's enabling this uh, second wave of ESG to really happen um, in, in a really, I'd say, sustainable way is that that first round when people were making these investments, um, there's a few things. You, you didn't really have a lot of the um, industry verticals adopting um, adopting uh, new technologies like SaaS. And so whether that's financial services or whether that's education and healthcare. Um, they're still prohibitively expensive. And so if you're trying to push technology out into developing areas as well, that was still somewhat prohibitively expensive. The, um, the iPhone um, and mobile technology was still nascent and not, not deployed globally. And so being able to, you know, put a supercomputer in everyone's hands makes that even much more um, uh, amenable to, to that. And so I think what you've seen really is the um, – you know, the shift that you've seen in cloud, the shift that you've seen in mobile technology is is really enabling, um, I think, this second wave of ESG investing that we're seeing is, is um, you know, I'd say being done in a much more sustainable way. And I think that's why it's, it's so successful the second time around. I, I promise we are going to get to Snowflake probably more in the second <laughs> half of our conversation, but I just want to give people the background on Salesforce Ventures before we drill in there. But you know, also something you said really interestingly was the funds for Europe and Japan, which which I think as a reputation, people say you know tech is a U.S. phenomenon. There's no big tech in Europe and and maybe a little bit in Japan, but much less than the U.S. What do you guys see on in those regions that that are, that are that are exciting on the, the sort of burgeoning maybe tech investment side? Um, I think that, um, you know, they're very different markets. Europe, uh, we've, we've been, as I mentioned, we've been investing there for a long time. Um, and I think that you're seeing, um, you know, quite a number of phenomena, but it's, it's very, um, and you're seeing this being accelerated with, um, with COVID is that 
it used to be you'd see a lot of the uh, European companies would raise a Series A and then uh, or a seed, and then they have to move to San Francisco um, once to either raise their A or their B or move their headquarters here. And so they kind of lost that European identity. Um, and we have a number of companies like that um, in our portfolio. But now what you're seeing is that these companies are really staying true and being more European-centric companies. And so I think as you've seen talent being largely distributed around the world, particularly around developers, and you've seen this shift in um, developer-centric businesses, you're seeing a large number of those coming out of Europe. You've, you know, historically, you've had a lot of um, really amazing financial services and fintech companies coming out of London. But I think that's just increasing. I think um, this distributed workforce and people figuring out how to work remotely is only going to benefit um, the whole world, but particularly you're seeing uh, Europe really accelerate. And Japan is also um, kind of a bit, you know, you don't think about that as much when you think about the startup, startup ecosystem, but I've been going to Japan now for about six or seven years. And, you know, when I first started going to Japan, what you had is you would have people that um, in Japan, typically you're retiring around 60 um, and, um, and, and you would find executives from these large industrial conglomerates and they would go and they'd look for their next thing to do and they may start a company. Um, and, and people were very reluctant uh, earlier in their career to go to startups. But if you look at our portfolio now, we have, we have companies that are being founded by um, startup CEOs that are, you know, in their late 20s, early 30s, that um, they, they started their career at one of the startup portfolios like Asanson, which is a public company. Um, so there's a few there's a few billion dollar public SaaS companies now uh, in Japan, and I'd say the other thing that we're seeing is uh, a large number of women starting companies in Japan, which three or four years ago was unheard of. So like when I now go to Japan, when I go in these offices, they look like you're going into an office in Silicon Valley. Everyone's in sweatshirts and jeans, or when I guess when we did that, when we went in offices, and it's funny because it's like I had this weird you know distorted view of Japan because when you talk to people, they say, well these are these are very unusual. This isn't like typical Japan business culture, but it feels and looks very much like um, going into a Silicon Valley office and they're getting former employees from Google and places like that. And, and just as a buyer, Japan's a great IT buyer um, as well. I, I could talk Japan forever, to be honest. I, mean, I love going to Tokyo, but uh, we'll have to talk about Japan. that on, on another another episode. Uh, we talked a lot about Salesforce Ventures and, and Salesforce itself, how they're thinking about the venture arm and, and future growth. Uh, but we're going to turn the conversation to Snowflake, which was one of the hottest IPOs, maybe I think the biggest software IPO, Matt, if I, if I have that right, in, in history. How, how are you guys thinking about Snowflake? How did you guys first get involved? Where, where did that fit into your, your strategic plans? Sure. So I think, you know, as I mentioned, I talked a lot about uh, digital transformation. Um, and if you think about this digital transformation 1.0, which is really how do you take companies and either take processes that they're doing on premise or um, on pencil and paper and really digitize that? And that tends to be siloed in workflows um, for like one line of business. And as you think about this transition to, to you know, call it digital transformation 2.0, you really need to, to have a 360 view of your customers. And so that's where you start to take all the data that lives in a bunch of different siloed areas that maybe you, know, you have some in your for your sales team and you may have some um, for your marketing team and you may have some for your customer service. But as you think about moving that forward and really providing the best customer experience, you need to really start to pull all that data together and you might need to start to aggregate it. And what, as you do that, that really unlocks um, some of the new technologies that are coming out like AI and machine learning. It really elevates how you think about um, analytics and viewing your whole business. You're now not only getting a one, view of like one aspect of your business, so maybe your head of sales gets some insight, but now as you start to combine all that data, you really get this 360 encompassing view of your business. And that's really where Snowflake comes in. So we think about it from like a strategic angle and how that fits into our business. And so um, what Snowflake does is it's a data warehouse and it allows you to, at a massive scale, pull in data from all these disparate um, um, places throughout your company, throughout your business, put them in one spot so then you can do a lot of different things. Um, and one of the things being we, we um, own Tableau, which is a, uh, a BI analytics tool. It's basically real-time engaging graphs and charts so that you can take all that data and surface it. And, and Snowflake has been a longtime partner um, with, with Tableau for a while. So it's really data is kind of the linchpin for digital transformation 2.0 and, and Snowflake's one of the emerging leaders there. 
And, and so Snowflake is helping you manage your data. Do they provide additional data to you, or is it really it's, they're just going to be the infrastructure to help you power all the analytics with inside your your organizations? It's the, it's the infrastructure, and really the challenge is that once you start getting large sets of data, it gets really expensive. Um, it's time-consuming to manage all that data, and so um, what, what they've done is develop this really great solution that allows you to um, you know, manage all that data in one spot um, very economically, and also if you want to derive insights, you may have massive, massive amounts of data um, that could take you know, minutes to hours to run uh, a query. They've been able to shorten that, that time frame down the seconds to minutes, and so it's really the infrastructure that allows you to manage power and, and, and um, query that data to ask questions. Interesting. Like when when you think about who they're competing with, like, and I've heard I've heard some that you know they're they've got a competition with with Amazon in some ways. Like, who would you say their prime competition is, and and people who use Snowflake versus use other providers? Um, so their their competitors are largely a lot of the um, incumbent, uh, um, like on premise um, data warehouse providers, like a like a Teradata, and then also. Amazon has a solution, as does Google Cloud and Azure, um, also have, have solutions in the market. And, and for your long-term future, is this something where you say, like a tableau, that this becomes, you think, eventually core to something? Like is, is Salesforce, do you think, one of the primary places that would, would benefit from it? Or do you think it's just going to be a standalone uh, type of thing and, and you guys just want to be continue to participate in their growth alongside uh, what you guys are doing? Yeah, from an invest as an investment, we think about um, you know it, it, like Zoom was an example of a company that we invested in at the IPO as well. They were a great partner. We used their solution to power some some things um, for our our service and sales use cases um, in our products. And so just like Zoom, uh, if there's a if there's a great company that's that's growing well and it's a great partner, we'll we'll invest and really want to um, tighten the partnership so that. The, uh, the customer experience is better, but we think about it just really um, on, on the partnership side and how we continue to work with them. And so when, when you think about that sort of partnership level and you talked about the platform and the app store, is it that, you know, people come to Salesforce and then you, you make platform like a, like an app like Snowflake available? Are you guys, you know, in, in, you're enabling people yeah. to, to onboard with them? So if you, so I'm from the partnership standpoint, um, one of the most common use cases for, for Snowflake um, is they take CRM, they take Salesforce data. Um, and when I talk about CRM data, I talk about like there's a, maybe a sales use case where, um, you know, a lot of people use our, our Salesforce automation solution and it's all the contacts and who they're communicating with and um, throughout their sales organization. Or, you know, we have um, marketing solutions to where you can email and reach out through social and things like that. And so one of the most common use cases that people do is they're taking all of their CRM data and then they're pushing it into Snowflake. So then they can do real-time analytics and say, hey, which areas are, is this product selling in the best? Or why are we not doing well here? And, and, and those sorts of things. Um, and so where they're actually publishing the, that, those queries so that you can visualize and see it is Tableau. And so Tableau has been a longtime partner. And so if you think about where, where, where Snowflake sits, it's um, thinking about how through the partnership, how can we make it easier to push, um, get data in and out of Salesforce into Snowflake um, so that it's, it's, that's a seamless experience because, you know, doing that um, can, can take a lot of time in engineering historically. And so we're thinking about ways to make it easier to get data in and out and then also to continue to improve the experience that customers have as they then visualize those questions that they're answering um, and visualize them uh, in the Tableau solution. So we're talking about with, with Matt Garrett, who's a, uh, a management partner of Salesforce Ventures, about uh, his, his firm, what they do at, Snowflake, uh, at, at Salesforce and their recent investment in Snowflake. Matt, when you think about the, uh, the types of people who use a Salesforce and then that's a Snowflake, is it got to be an enterprise, large relationship? Do you, do you try to serve sort of more smaller businesses? Like what is the sort of pricing models for some of these type of services that you think people can engage with? you and and with their with their platform together sure we we sell to all customers so um, when salesforce first started what was so disruptive um is that we were actually one of the first um we were the first company to really offer this solution um in the cloud meaning you could you could go online and access it versus 
um, having to um, buy software and, and download it. And really, what that what that unlocked is 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 a couple things. One is um, the cost to install and deliver that was much less. Um, and so what that you know what and then the pricing model was very unique because then you could enable a subscription model because historically what you did is you had to buy package software and you have to have someone come in and install it and and do a lot of services work it was very expensive and then you were kind of locked in it was very hard to get updates and the latest and greatest features and so we kind of broke that whole model but really what that allowed us to do is more economically start serving um, small and medium businesses. Um, and then over time, we've moved up now to where, you know, most of the Fortune 500 uses it. So we really cover the whole gamut um, from from small businesses all the way up to enterprise. But our our, our uh, lineage was we started in the in the small medium business marketplace. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, and and we talked a bit about the, you know, in terms of the Scott the size and scope of the client base potentially. And you know, I think some of that comes to people's questions on you know, this IPO being the valuations on Snowflake. It's not the cheapest company out there. And you talked about sort of in the growth segment, you know, you're really thinking about the long-term future. But how do you think about that potential marketplace, how it's priced today? Uh, you know, if you guys got it at the IPO price, probably looking pretty nice at how the, the pop went. But how, how, how do you guys think about that that valuation that, that it's all now trading at uh, for the market today? Yeah, um, you know, we think about this, again, really on the long term because it's, it's um, you know, it's it's hard to comment on prices at any one point in time, right? There's often yeah. exogenous factors that will will um, you know dictate that. But as you think about their market, I mean, the core cloud data warehouse market, it's a massive market, um, and you know they have best in class metrics in terms of how they're growing there. And then if you think about um, their expansion, their companies are using that not only is the cloud data warehouse, which is kind of that uh, historically what companies would do is they have this large data lake. They take all their dump and their data from throughout the company. They put in this data lake and then they take a subset of it and that they want to do like real time analytics and they would put it in their cloud data warehouse, which is historically the market segment that um, that um, Snowflake has played in. But over time, we're seeing companies using that full as their full data lake and and so that's a that increases the overall TAM and then they're using it to do some of the um, moving data in and out and transforming it so that it's a useful um, so that it's useful and it can be consumed and you can run analytics on it and there's large companies who do that piece alone and then and they've recently launched this um, data exchange and it's similar to the partnership that we have with them in terms of making it easier for companies to move data in and out and so they have a number of use cases that continue to um, expand their core market. And then also from a user standpoint is they're historically data analysts and engineers were using this, but you're really starting with the, they've made this product really easy to use. And so that's starting to spin, move more into business unit, business users and business analysts. So they're both doing a great job of expanding the use cases and the users within um within companies and so that's really increasing the TAM and as you you can see a lot of this in their metrics just in terms of the the retention and expansion um, within a given customer is is best in class. Yeah, I I think I saw like a net customer retention of 158% which means uh, I imagine that they're just expanding usage within, within those customers. They, they are, and and, and at, a, at a at a very rapid rate, um, and it's and it's because of the the ease of use, um, and uh, it's it's also much more economical than the alternatives, and so those two things have really led to a, a, a tremendous amount of expansion within their existing customer base. Now, I know, I know you're not going to be able to speak for like a Berkshire Hathaway, but the, this IPO got a lot of publicity of that you and Berkshire came in in sort of bigger size at, at the IPO. Is there, is there anything you think um, from their involvement that, that attracted them to from Snowflake's perspective here? You know, I don't have any insight into, into Berkshire's um, in, involvement in the IPO. So I okay. wouldn't have that's, any winning thing. That, yeah. That's fair. Um, so when you think about the um, – you talked about the the big data coming here and being being opportunities for artificial intelligence and machine learning. I'm sort of coming back to that. As you think about other things that you're doing alongside this or other investments you're making, how, how do you think about the the opportunities for companies to to en- enhance their learnings through machine learning and, and AI? Um, well, I think that we're going to, uh, uh, you know, it's it's interesting. So as you think about artificial intelligence and machine learning. 
Um, the, the hard part isn't really the algorithms and having the best and smartest algorithm. The, 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 the hard part is kind of twofold. One is um, it's getting the best data. Uh, you know, the person that has the best data has the best algorithm. Um, and again, then that's, that's the interesting thing about things like Snowflake is it really starts to, um, to unlock that. And, you know, and then the other part is just a lot of engineering. It's knowing, knowing which algorithm to apply, um, uh, uh which time. But so, it, it, you know, and, and the reason I hit on that is, is we've seen, you know, a tremendous amount of investment in engineering and as, as companies like Snowflake, um, have, have, are really starting to unlock a lot of this data. Um, that's really going to start to really uh, unlock more artificial intelligence um, in, in machine learning. And so now what you're starting to switch to is artificial intelligence and machine learning is coming to a point where, um, and, and some of the other platforms are also, um, you know, we have artificial intelligence through our Einstein that's built into all of our plat all of our um, applications as well. So our, you know, if you're, if you want intelligence to know, like, you know, who should I be sending an email to, um, that's, you know, we have artificial intelligence that powers that, or if, a if a customer has a complaint and they call a call center, um, and you want uh, to figure out who's the, who's the best person to route that to, um, and help kind of automate some of that with, um, with, um, you know, and automate that on a, and through bots or messaging or things like that, we have that capability as well. So artificial intelligence has really moved more from this thing that was kind of you would you would promote your company and say oh we're artificial intelligence machine learning and it's kind of it's kind of moving into this way, I'd say where the cloud was um, you know uh, a few years ago where people would talk oh we're a cloud company we're built in the cloud and now that's becoming kind of table stakes and I think that's sort of what you're seeing as well with artificial intelligence and machine learning that you know it's advanced to a point now um, that that most applications that you're seeing are are including that and building building that into their applications. Yeah, I, I've heard a lot on that. It, it, the algo is all driven by how good of your data is, and you know some of the. I think one of the other big popular dis discussion points today is is our our battle or say race of 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 tech with China and sort of China having, you know, a lot more people to run a lot of their algorithms on. Do you have any view on, on, on sort of China tech? We talked about Europe and Japan before, but I don't know if you guys are, are looking at Asia as, as an investment destination and, and uh, just the, the big tech companies in, in China also being one of these uh, just places where there's a lot of interesting tech oriented companies. Yeah, I don't have as much perspective there. We don't, we don't invest much there. We have, we have um, some business there, but that's, that's not an area we've we've largely, from an investment standpoint, we've focused on on Japan and APAC outside of China, um, uh, Europe, North America, a little bit in Latin America. But I don't have as good of a perspective on on China. Very good. Uh, in, in terms of what other themes that if, if you say other, so Snowflake's one of your big focal points. Any other things that you're focused on? Uh, sort of things that you're excited about that that you're working on. Yeah, I mean, I think um, a, a couple things is what we've seen with um, uh, with the um, you know COVID and and what 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 that's um, accelerated is we've certainly seen um, gotten a lot of excitement around some of the some of the um, uh, companies that were managing things that just things you had to have immediately to allow companies to work. So um, you know whether that's um, managing the endpoint security of your of your of your companies. They, now, now people will have laptops at home. They have more devices at home. How do you secure things like that? We invested in a company called um, Tanium to, to help with that. Um, obviously, everyone's on Zoom these days in telecommunications and video conferences. We were, we were a big investor in Zoom. Um, we spent a lot of time looking at next generation collaboration um, solutions as well. Um, that allow you to kind of like mimic what you'd be doing on a whiteboard at home. That those are pretty interesting. Some of the next generation um, platforms that allow you to do events um, in real time together are, are really exciting. Um, but we and we continue to think about like what's kind of that next level. What's what's um, you know what's coming after this? Some of these initial investments and some of the things that were very um, um, uh, you know, prominent in the venture community, we're kind of solving that immediate need. And so now you start to think about, well, what's that next need? And kind of as I was talking about, we, we do talk a lot about this digital transformation 2.0 
and we think about the investments along that spectrum. And so we've made a lot of investments in automation and how do you think about like getting data automatically in and out of all of your, again, your, your sales solutions or your e-commerce solutions and your uh, marketing solutions. Um, we invest in a company called Automation Anywhere that kind of automates simple tasks. Like if you're in finance and you're checking to make sure an invoice was paid, you can do that in an automated way, but also get data in and out of your, your applications. Um, and then you kind of just go along that continuum. And as you start to get more and more data in, that's what led our investment. Snowflake, we've invested in a number of companies that focus on data privacy. So now as data becomes so core and critical um, to digital transformation and enterprises, you need to make sure that it's being done securely. And so we invest in a company called Big ID that helps you make sure that you, you're compliant with all the PII and regulatory issues. We um, invest in a company called Privitar so that if you're running, um, you know, you're running analytics and you're doing tests and make sure that your AI algorithms that you can kind of obfuscate that. Um, and so, so those are, those are some of the areas that, that we're really excited about and we continue to invest, um, along that spectrum and, um, yeah. Yeah. The privacy, cybersecurity seems like it's the, one of the next, uh, one of the really important things as you go more to the cloud, having all that, that, that protection seems to be paramount. The, the point on the, the uh, digital events is sort of really interesting and just in, in, in our, in our final few minutes here, as you think about the future in this COVID world, how, how has Salesforce reacted to the, the pandemic? And then, and, and how are you, how long do you think this, this shutdown and sort of the investing around that? How, how do you think about that lasting? Where, where's your vision of the future? Uh, I wish I could tell you how long the shutdown is going to happen and, and how long we're going to be um, uh, doing things remotely. But, um, you know, we just did an event um, with Forbes investor. We do this thing called the cloud 100 every year which is where we celebrate the top 100 privately held cloud companies. And if you look at that list, that's a good predictor of who's going to go um, public. And it was funny, we were joking. In March, we were talking about um, whether or not to put a down payment. We had a, we had a, um, we usually have a gala every year and we had um, a venue secured and we were talking about whether or not to put down the down payment on that. Um, and we were like, well, we're probably going to be back by Memorial day. This was, we just had it last week. It was, um, it was um, so, you know, middle of September. And at the time, we were like, well, we're definitely going to be back by September. But then we said, you know, but it may not. People may not feel comfortable g gathering. Um, but so we switched to all virtual and all digital. And so we, uh, we're we an investor in a company called Hopin that powered that whole experience. Um, and <clears throat> and that, that was one of the companies I was talking about. But um, and so we really it was um, it was great. I mean, it was um, we we in many ways, it's kind of, um, you know, uh, uh, when you're when you're put in those situations, you you kind of have to innovate out of necessity. Um, it was a great, it was so a great event we, I attended, and I were we're out of time, Matt. But uh, okay. you know, a few, few thousand people at that event I saw. It was a great event. Top, it was great, great platform. Thank you so much for joining us on Behind the Markets, SiriusXM with our two. We talked with Matt Garrett of, of Salesforce Ventures. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. It's been a great conversation. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.